Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thank you again for being here on the special night of storytelling. Once again, my name is Luis Antonio Perez. I'm a, a producer at Colorado Public Radio, and I'll be functioning as your host today, but mostly I'm going to be standing out of the way because this night is about you, about the community of people. Okay, okay. I'm going to interrupt myself here and tell you what's going on. What you're listening to right now is audio of me at a live storytelling event. Some people call it a story slam. And I've been slamming for the past 10 years. I started telling personal stories in front of a live audience in my hometown of Chicago, the birthplace of poetry slams. And I was part of a movement that elevated story slams as part of the city's rich performance culture. From the first moment that I got up on stage, sharing my truth and experiencing the stories of others, I was hooked. But over the years, I noticed something missing. The intention behind all these events was to create opportunities for anyone and everyone to share their stories. But that just wasn't happening. I noticed I was different. Sometimes I was the only first-generation American or the only college dropout, the only kid who grew up in the city as part of the hip-hop generation. Then I realized we weren't hearing voices from all kinds of communities. There are a lot of personal stories we don't hear from people and places that are just around the corner and just beyond sight. Now, I'm on a mission to find these stories here in Colorado and share them with you. The idea is to give folks a chance to step up to the mic themselves and speak their truth in their voices. Welcome to My Story So Far, a new storytelling podcast that brings you voices from the plains, the peaks, the valleys, and the hidden corners of Colorado. I'm your host, Luis Antonio Perez. In this season, we hear the experiences, thoughts, and reflections from different communities and challenge ourselves to look at life through a different lens and just maybe gain a deeper understanding of our own lives. For our first story slam, we linked up with the folks at Remerge, an organization that works with formerly incarcerated people to help them navigate the foggy reentry process, a process that's historically riddled with barriers and misinformation. Like all other communities, this one has unique challenges. After being away for three or 30 years, having paid your debt to society, managing the transition out can be jarring and emotional. The world is inevitably a different place. Then there's the pressure of rebuilding a life outside and trying to meet your own expectations of being the person you promised yourself that you would become. Remerge was already doing super creative things to get the stories of this community out there. So, 
we set up a visit with their executive director, Carol Peoples. Hello? Yeah. Hey, good afternoon. Good, how are you? We want to create something that is a hub for people who are coming out of incarceration. We know there are gaps in the system, but sometimes the threads are lost. Working with Remerge, we organized a small event and invited a few storytellers to share their personal narratives about reentry. The scene for our get-together was the Tattered Cover bookstore on Colfax Avenue in Denver. The Tattered Cover has been serving Denverites for over 50 years. And this space, surrounded by stories, was the perfect place to host an evening of listening. I have two stories to share with you from that night. The first is from David Coleman. When I met Dave for the first time, it was in a virtual meeting. Despite the small screen, he managed to fill the room with his presence. When he told this story, Dave was living in a halfway house, serving out the first year of his release. His story is about the importance of having the courage to show compassion. What's up, Eric? How's everybody doing today? Good, that's great. Uh, man, I'm really humbled to be here this evening. And uh, if I don't say nothing else tonight, I need to say the name David Wayne Clark. That is my victim. I get to be up here today and I live a life and he don't get to be here because of a choice that I made over 35 years ago. And so when I tell my story, I try to not only even after this night and before this night live my life, not only in honor of him, my kids, my family, and myself. And so I try to represent all of us in a way, in a dignified way, to bring something good at something happened so terrible that night. I'm originally from Gary, Indiana, moved out here in 1980 as a 16-year-old kid, graduated from George Washington High School, great grades in high school. My dad was a minister, my mom was an evangelist. Never been in any trouble with the law. And then right after high school, I joined the United States Marine Corps. I went right there, signed up, did three years, and while I was in, I started self-medicating cocaine, alcohol, and it got out of control. And I wound up getting discharged from the Marine Corps with a general under honorable discharge. And so I come home to my wife. I had married and had two children. My daughter was a little bit over one and a half years old. My son was six months old. And so I get the stupid idea that I want to go out and rob a drug dealer. And I didn't have to do that. I was working. We had an apartment, the bills was being paid, but I did it anyway. And so I remember vividly in the bathroom, putting this sawed off shotgun under my coat. And I had one, a belt from my pants. I had tied it around and I'm trying to sneak out of the living room. And my wife was sitting there at the table and my daughter was in the living room floor. She's jumping around and my son was crawling. And so I'm trying to make it out of the door and my wife jump up, honey, honey, hold up, give me a kiss. And so she jumps in front of me between me and the door and she went to try kissing me and she feels this gun. And she started just freaking out, man, freaking out. 
And, uh, and I told her, no, don't worry about it. She said, what is this? What is this? She's trying to open my coat, and I'm trying to push her away. And then all of a sudden, I hear all this racket to the left of me, and I look, and I see my daughter just acting up, screaming, crying, jumping up, just going crazy. And my son is just crawling in circles. And that was really bizarre to me. It's like one of those things when you look back in life, you didn't know really what it meant at the time. But as years go by, you know exactly what it meant. They were all telling me, don't go, you know. And I just pushed her out of the way and I went anyway. My kids, they felt her energy and they knew, I feel, that something bad was going to happen that night. And so I went on out and uh, went to rob this drug dealer and it was nothing like you imagined. Ended up killing David Wayne Clark. He had the same name that I had. We were the same age. All of these things, you know, that we had in common. And uh, I eventually got a life sentence for it. And so I wound up starting my prison term. And to me, as a kid, I'm trying to figure, how did this happen? How do a guy that come from a small town, come out here to Colorado, graduate from high school, good in sports? How did all this happen, you know? And uh, so I said, you know what? I'm going to try to make the best of it. So my first six years in prison, I went to college. Regis University had uh, many campuses out there. And got myself a bachelor's degree in social psychology. And what's crazy is that I continued to take programs. And so I got really, really smart by enlightening myself in prison. And my peers started recognizing. And then I was started lifting weights. I went in prison wearing 170 pounds. And I put on 50 pounds of muscle. And so all of the other convicts in prisons started calling me Big Dave. You know, I put on all this muscle and I was pretty sharp, you know, from the schooling that I took. I felt that I could talk with anybody. The crazy thing about it is I didn't grow in the area that mattered the most and that was right here. My personal character integrity was still lacking and I didn't know that. I was listening to the hype from everybody that seen me. I took all these programs in prison and they were telling me, man, you should deserve a clemency, man. Look all the things you've accomplished. I've had a locker box full of certifications and certificates that I obtained. And all it took was just a little bit of nudging for me to act out again. And in some ways, I felt that I was worse off after 20 years of incarceration than when I first came in. And so right around that 20-year mark, I wind up going to a program called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that program, was, to me, was like a mirror. It showed me, and they started asking me questions, what's your values? How do you want to be remembered? I couldn't answer any of them because I didn't have any. I was still very, very reactive, and I was disappointed at the age of 40 that I haven't grown in any of those areas. And so I started the makeover, and I started really trying to find out how I want to be remembered, how some integrity will my kids respect me, and that I respect myself. Because the man that I seen in the mirror I did not love, I did not respect, I did not trust, because I broke every promise that I ever made to myself and others. And as I started growing and trying to adopt the seven habit principles in my life, I began to look in the mirror and started the beginning to say, well, you know what, I'm feeling okay. I'm not doing dope in prison. I'm putting down the shady deals. I'm not keeping myself armed with an ice pick. I used to bury a knife in, prison, in a prison yard or have it hid in the ceiling. I started letting those things go. And so the progress and the courage and the character that I started developing, other people started noticing. But I still didn't believe in myself at that time. I'm thinking, you know, you know okay, they seeing too much. They putting way too much on this, man. 
And all of a sudden, the warden started trusting me. And I was shaving that Sunday morning. It was Father's Day. And the guards came to my house, and I thought they were joking. They said, the warden sent us here to take you to see your father. And I said, what? And he told the guards, do not put no handcuffs on this man, no weapons. Take him to see his father. He let me go outside of the prison. I'm a high security inmate with a life sentence. He allowed me to go to my father's hospice at our house. And we went out all the way to Aurora from Canyon City. And when I walked in there, my dad was laying in their bed and he just started smiling, man, because he didn't come up and visit a lot. I don't know if he could stand seeing his son in prison and probably never get out. And I just got behind on the side of the bed and held his hand. And he would not let my hand go, man. And for the first time, I felt the connection with my father. I felt that he was proud of me. He understood that these things don't happen. That a person like me, and they just let me come outside the prison. And I even told guys, take pictures of this, because nobody's going to believe it. The guards got around my dad's bed. They was in their uniform. We were all there. And that wasn't the only thing. I was one of the first inmates they allowed to go out and do strategic planning with staff. We went out and helped, and they never let an inmate do that before. And then I started realizing, you know, maybe I am this person that they see that I couldn't see in myself. And then all of a sudden, I continued to progress in prison, and then someone mentioned it to the, to the governor, and uh, some letters was written, and he wound up giving me a clemency. And uh, otherwise, I would have been in prison the rest of my life. And now here it is, I'm out. I got the clemency. I'm working at a place called Second Chance. I just got promoted. I'm a program manager. Man, I do all these big, cool things. I got me a car. And you know what? I'm still humble, though, you know? Because like I said in the beginning, I know the impact that I had on so many people, you know, my Son grew up without me. My daughter grew up without me. I got a grandbaby. We FaceTime a lot, and I get to see her. And uh, there's so many people put their name on me, not only the governor, even my family. And I know they're watching me and saying, is, is he going to fall? Is he going to break down? Is this really true? This story is too good to be true. But it's true. I know what it feels like to have integrity. I know what it feels like to have character. And I don't want to trade that for anything. And so when I talk about transformation, there was not one moment where I made the change. It's a gradual moment, and I'm continuing to grow. And each day I continue to work on those things that I need to work on and make one choice after another. And so I appreciate you guys taking the time to hear me today, and you guys have a great evening. David Coleman was granted clemency in 2022 after 34 years in prison. He is currently the program manager at the Second Chance Center, where he helps people just like him find housing, counseling, and employment services. Dave has since moved on from the halfway house and lives in Aurora. Next, we'll hear a story about how our wardrobe can be more than just clothes. And what we choose to wear can be imbued with meaning about our successes and our failures. That's after the break.
Hi, I'm Emily Williams. I'm one of the producers who work behind the scenes to help bring you my story so far. Our team makes this show because we want listeners to hear these stories. First-person, unfiltered, live storytelling. Coloradans sharing their experiences on stage for the first time ever. And we want to spread the word. So could you help us out? If you know someone who might like this podcast, please take a minute and share it with them. If you know two people, even better. Thanks for listening, sharing, and helping more people discover my story so far. As a professional on Capitol Hill, appearances mattered to Ashley first. They were part of how she presented herself as her career took off. But then, she spent time in prison. And now, appearances matter to her for a completely different reason. Please put your hands together for Ashley first. Well, hello. Um, I feel like I have some really amazing stories to follow. I'm a little nervous now. So, um, so your clothes are usually the first thing someone sees about you, right? They can shape an impression before you even said a word to someone. And we all have that piece of clothing that when we put it on, we feel amazing and like we can just take on anything. When it comes to the professional world, the more neutral your outfit, the better, right? Black, navy, gray, khaki, they're all staples in in an office environment. But when I worked in Washington, D.C., it was like I was performing for people. My professional attire was the costume that I wore. In the lobbying world, you have to go into an office with confidence. And as a woman in the lobbying world, that confidence has to be supplemented with an outfit that is on point to be taken seriously. So for me, I had a particular clothing item that really helped me feel invincible when I was up on the hill. It was a hunter green blazer that was just slightly different and unique. Something I suppose I guess I ultimately wanted to be. I wanted to be remembered when it came down to it. The blazer was close enough to neutral to be an appropriate color and not brilliant enough to stand out and be seen as too eclectic for that Capitol Hill environment, the land of red power ties and those white starch shirts that you see all the time. The blazer had a subtle herringbone pattern on the outside, and when I rolled up the sleeves, out popped green silk with a white polka dot pattern, like a little surprise underneath like a calm lake, kind of. The silk was cooling on the inside, especially in the hot, humid DC summer days. The blazer almost made me feel like I put on my superhero cape to try to save the world, and I loved it. For a while, I felt so silly about this importance I I placed on clothes and I was worried I'd come off as seeming vain and narcissistic for it. (laughs) Like, you know, especially as a woman, you know, sometimes we we place value on ourselves by how we we look. But even though I portrayed myself as this confident professional woman talking with senators and congressmen on Capitol Hill, my life was a cluster (laughs) on the outside, I will be very honest. I suffered, still suffer from imposter syndrome really badly. So I would self-medicate, I turned to alcohol, I had a really bad cocaine problem. It lasted probably like five or six years. So because of this drug addiction, I fell into massive, massive debt. Um, And I remember that fateful day I made the worst mistake of my life and used my employer's bank account to start to pay down this massive amount of debt that I had. So in other words, I committed a federal crime. 
I was sentenced to 27 months in the federal system. I felt like my life was over. I didn't see any point in keeping anything from this soon-to-be past life. Not my house, not my husband, not even my clothes. So about a week and a half before I self-surrendered, I began packing up everything in, in the closet. And as I set out to clear it all, I separated items into two piles, one to donate to Goodwill and one to keep. And I remember when it came to my professional clothes, I just gathered them all up off the hangers and threw them on the ground. And I was like, I'm just, gonna, I'm just done. I'm going to get rid of it all. I was going to be branded with this scarlet letter F for the rest of my life that I feel like it's just on my shoulder like you all can see it right now. You know, there's no way I'm going to get back in the professional world with a felony. Just, it's done. I felt like I was discarded, like I was damaged, much like something you would donate to Goodwill, right, and just completely forget about for the rest of your life. So this blazer is sitting on top of the donation pile, and I, I keep looking at it and picking it up and setting it back down, like, do I get rid of it? Like, I felt this, like, internal struggle that now, like, when I first thought of it, I thought it was ridiculous. I was like, I, why am I so attached to this piece of clothing? Um, but, you know, once I got to prison, everyone wears the same thing. You know, where I was, it was khaki pants, khaki button-downs, um, brown t-shirt, the Clothes in prison are stiff, unyielding, and they were men's clothes in a women's prison. So gone were these comfortable clothes that made you feel like a professional or even a human being. You know, individuality is very much discouraged in prison. You're just a number, 355-22016. can still repeat it <laughs> to this day. Um, you know, after I was released, I also did a year in the halfway house and I was wearing my own clothes again, but I still felt lost. Like, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. So I started working at Goodwill, sorting through donated clothes. And eventually, a person took a chance on me to get me back into the career field I thought I had left behind. You know, it's, it made me start to believe in myself again. So I started to set goalposts for myself. So I set another goalpost to get a little bit better of a job, which led to another company believing in me. Because when you're coming out of a system that tells you you're nothing, that you're insignificant, you're not worth taking a chance on, you know, you'll always be the label that you're stuck with. It can be easy to just walk off and be like, forget it. Like, I'll just go back to that life. But I wanted to keep challenging myself, keep moving the goalposts I had set. So all these moving goalposts has actually led me to the job I have now as a senior program manager for employment opportunities at an organization called Responsible Business Initiative for Justice, or RBIJ. And we are an international nonprofit that engages businesses and business leaders to use their platform to enact criminal justice change all over the country. We actually helped pass Clean Slate here in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my role in particular leads second chance hiring as well as what we call first chance hiring, which is aimed at a subset of opportunity youth to prevent that poverty to prison pipeline. But I, I finally feel like I'm, I'm starting to rebuild not, not only my life, but also my wardrobe because now I'm in a more professional environment. But I remember when I walked into Ann Taylor to, to buy you know, my professional clothes again, I just stood there and I looked at all the bright clothes and like the bright lights and I was like, I feel like I'm getting back on track. I feel like I'm remembering that I'm more than this label than I have. And the first piece of professional clothing I bought was this bright yellow shirt that has flowers on it. And the first time I wore it, everyone was like, whoa. <laughs> um, but you know, I've realized it's not about the clothes in my life. The clothes are just the representation of me, the new me that I am putting forward into this world and the person that I've reshaped and built myself into. 
You know, there are still people on the outskirts of my life right now that want to see me fail, that they want to see me struggle, and I'm not going to let them. Um, you know, I'm still in the process of rebuilding my life, repairing relationships, figuring out my place in the world. So this opportunity to buy these new clothes is an opportunity for me to show that I'm a different person now, how I've grown um, and learned from all my mistakes. And while clothes are ultimately just a thing, they're also a representation of how we view ourselves. I'm using these new clothes as my new and improved costume to remind myself of how far I've come, how I've personally changed, and how I can now try to help other people who've been in all of our situations. So thank you. <laughs> Ashley is now a senior program manager for RBIJ, Responsible Business Initiative for Justice. She leads their second chance hiring program and a new youth program called First Chance. This was the first episode of My Story So Far, and we have many more stories to share with you this season that I can't wait for you to hear. Thank you to Remerge for helping us organize this story slam. You can learn more about them and their services at remerge.com. That's R-E-M-E-R-G.com. Next time, we'll bring you more stories from another community in Colorado. My Story So Far is a show that collects first-person stories from hidden communities across Colorado. If your community has stories to share, let us know. Find us at cpr.org communityaudio. This show is produced by me and Emily Williams. Our editor is Joe Erickson. You can find a list of everyone who works on My Story So Far in the show notes. For Colorado Public Radio, I'm Luis Antonio Perez. Hi, my name's Emily Williams. I'm a producer on My Story So Far and part of a big team that helps make the podcast. A lot of the stories you hear in this show are people sharing their experiences on stage for the first time ever. If you want more people to hear this unique podcast built around first-person stories from communities around Colorado, you can help us out right now. Please rate the show on your favorite podcast app or write a review. It helps other people discover my story so far. Thanks for listening and supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio.